Good morning. It's good to see everyone. This is the time we come to open God's Word in our time of worship. We want to hear from God. We do not want to leave here this morning without hearing from God and His Word. Open your Bibles or find a Bible in the pew there and turn to John, the ninth chapter. We have come to another chapter in our study of this book, and we come to another miracle as we come to this chapter. In fact, it is one unit, it is one miracle that is being talked about in this particular chapter. This is the miracle of Jesus healing the man born uh, blind, and we uh, see once again a miracle that John has selected to include in the gospel. He, he chose seven miracles. Jesus did a lot more than seven. Jesus did a lot more than seven miracles in his three-year ministry, but John chose seven of them simply to prove the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, that he has power that only God has. You remember in chapter 2, it was water into wine. Remember in chapter 4, it was the healing of the nobleman's son. Remember in chapter 5, it was the healing of the paralytic by the pool. In chapter 6, it was the feeding of 5,000. Also in chapter 6, Jesus walked on water. In chapter 11, he will raise Lazarus from the dead. And today, the sixth of those seven is this healing of the blind man that we see in this chapter. In thinking about this chapter, our minds are drawn to a song, the most popular song or the most recorded song uh, in history uh, since it was written, a song that has been sung by more artists uh, than any other song. It's the song Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. John Newton was a pastor in London, England, but before that he was a slave trader. If you ever get a chance, pick up a biography about John Newton. Fascinating. Let me read part of his testimony to you. I could read a lot here, but there's, I'm not going to do that. Basically, uh, he was raised in a Christian home, but his mother died. He got put in another home, and he was uh, not, not really raised much, much after that in the terms of Christianity. Uh, in fact, the family, he, his father and his new wife, they mocked Christianity. Um, he went away to sea. It was said that John Newton was able to um, uh, say more words of profanity in an hour and never repeat himself. He had that kind of reputation among people. Here we are on a voyage, though, that he was on. Near the end of the, this one voyage, as they were approaching Scotland, the ship he was on ran into bad weather and was blown off course. Water poured in, and the ship began to sink. Uh, the young Newton was sent down into the hold to pump water. The storm lasted for days. Newton was terrified. He was sure the ship would sink and he would drown. But in the hold of the ship, as he desperately pumped water, the God of all grace, whom he had tried to forget, but who had never forgotten him, brought to his mind my Bible verses he had learned at his home as a child from his mother. The way of salvation opened up to him. He was born again and deeply transformed. Much later, when he was again in England, Newton began to study theology and eventually became a preacher, first in a little town called Olney and later in London. Newton was a great preacher of grace because he experienced God's amazing grace himself. He wrote the song Amazing Grace. Look down at verse 25, 25 of John chapter 9. I once was blind, but now I see. He compared his salvation to divine deliverance. He compared his salvation to divine deliverance of a blind man being given sight to see. The song is based on John chapter 9, in fact. It's amazing testimony, amazing testimony of how he viewed his conversion the Bible uses blindness. This is we're going to see as we get into this. You'll see how the story goes. The Bible uses blindness in a spiritual sense to speak of our condition that we are all blind. We walk around in darkness. We walk around in blindness. We don't see. We don't see in a spiritual sense. We come into this world needing our eyes to be opened to the truth. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. So this I say, 
and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. This is the unbeliever. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Listen to Romans 1, 21. For even though, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And that is the theme of the gospel of John. We saw it in John 1. We saw it in John 3. We see it again in John 8. We're seeing it here in John 9. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light that has come into the darkness. Jesus is the light that enlightens every man. Jesus is the light of the world. Look in chapter 8, verse 12. If you've got John 9 sitting in front of you, go back up to the previous chapter. 8, verse 12. Jesus seeing all those amazing candelabras in the temple, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Go down to verse 5 of chapter 9, and you see Jesus repeats it again. I am the light of the world. And we're going to see as we go through this chapter the issue of the man's physical blindness and the issue of the man's spiritual blindness. You see the power of Christ as he performs this physical miracle, healing the man of blindness, which sets up the healing of the man's spiritual blindness. And I told you this last week, I say it again to you this week, in chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he is dialoguing with them back and forth, and he says in chapter 8, verse 43, you cannot hear my words. You hear words, but you cannot hear my words. We are talking like this. We're going this, I'm going this way, you're going this way. Our words are going parallel to each other, not intersecting. You follow me? They're not intersecting. And it will be like that, friends, when you are talking to an unbeliever. No matter how eloquent you, want it, you may sound, no matter how much you know about apologetics, no matter how smart you are or how polished you are in your presentation, You can preach a wonderful message of salvation, but unless God does something in their heart, they will not hear. In fact, he says in John 8, 47, you must be born of God to hear. You need a new nature to hear. God must do something in you that you might hear. It's the same with this metaphor today on blindness. You cannot see. I cannot make you see. You can shine the light as brightly as you want to. And I cannot see it. In fact, when Jesus says those words in verse 5, I am the light of the world, and he's standing in front of the blind man, do you know that that was useless to that man, that Jesus is the light of the world? He could not see him. What does it matter if you're the light of the world? That blind man could not see the man who was saying those words. He may have heard the words, but he could not see them. That man had never seen sunshine before. That man had never seen light before. That man was foreign to the concept of light. That man did not understand what was being said by I am the light of the world. Something would have to happen to make that man see. He could feel the effects of the sunlight. He could sweat because of the sunlight, but he had never seen the sunlight And Jesus' message, I am the light of the world, as true as that statement is, and as wonderful as it is coming from the very source, it was in no way effective in that man's life unless God did something to his blind eyes, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense as well. It's kind of like people in Romans 1 will go out and look at the creation of the world. They will see all the magnificence of God's creation. They will see and maybe even come to the conclusion that there must be a creator. But seeing all of that does them no good because they begin to speculate, they suppress the truth, 
And unless God opens their eyes, their foolish hearts become darkened and they do not understand what it all means. Spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, same problem for all humanity unless God does a work to born a person from above, to born a person to salvation. He must do that work, not by the will of the flesh, but by the spirit of the living God. And so Jesus is standing there with a blind man in the presence of all these people, and you're about to see him do an incredible work in this man's life. Like I said, there are two works of Christ in John chapter 9. In the first 34 verses, it's the working of a miracle, a physical miracle. But what's interesting, you begin to see even in the process of this miracle, or as this miracle has taken place, you begin to see something happening in this man. He's first going to say, Jesus did this. Then he's going to say, a prophet did this. And then finally at the end of the chapter, Lord, you did this. And he bows down and worships him. You see a progression in the man even as we go through this chapter. As he comes to an understanding of what Christ does in his life. Go to John 9 verse 1. As he passed by, Jesus passes by. We left off in chapter 8. Remember, they were going to throw stones at him. I'm not sure John is following chronology like this is the next day type of talk. I'm not sure. It could be. It could be. We could still be in Jerusalem. Most likely we are in Jerusalem. Here's what we do know. We know that John chapter 8 takes place in October because it's the Feast of the Booze. And we know that John 10, the next chapter, chapter, verse 22, is the Feast of Dedication. So that's December. So somewhere in between October and December, November, or, or days maybe still be in October, We don't know for sure the exact order here, but we do know that Jesus is with the 12 disciples. He passes by, it tells us, and he sees a blind man, a man who's been blind from birth. This man was not blinded by an accident. This man was not blinded by something that happened um, uh, because later in life, this is something that happened when he was born. He was born with this condition, blindness, physical blindness. A birth defect, you would say. Verse 2, and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, wow, look at this question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? The disciples don't see this as an opportunity for Jesus to perform a miracle. They see this as a theological problem to be solved. You follow me? Why do bad things happen? <laughs> Why do things like this happen? Is it because this man sinned or his parents sinned? Why does it happen? Assuming a certain answer, what's the specific sin that this man did or his parents did that would cause him to be blind, to be born blind? It was interesting, they would say the Pharisees had a thing. This was, this was common teaching, by the way. They're expressing common teaching. I'll show you, even take you back further and show you why this is common teaching of their day. You had to do something bad for God to do this to you. They thought even babies, you know, they're sinning in the womb. They kicked their mothers. That's it. They kicked their mothers. Therefore, they're sinning in the womb. Therefore, something bad's going to happen to them. That was their thinking. Everything was like that. A specific sin brought a specific judgment. Unfortunately, people in the church today would act this this very same way. They believe this. There are people, I believe, maybe you think like this. There are some sitting in this room, some in the body of Christ today, that think like this. They attach a specific problem in someone's life to a specific sin they've committed. God must be judging you. Your life is a mess because God doesn't like you. Because of what you did. I've heard people say that. I must have done something wrong. That God would punish me like that. Specific sin, a specific judgment. I am not saying that there aren't times when that might be true. James 5 is an example of that. The end of James chapter 5. 
It might be true. You're being punished for something, uh, uh, being disciplined for something, and something happened. I'm not saying that never happens. It happened with King Uzziah. He Leprosy associated with him trying to act like a priest. Judgment was brought on him. So I'm not saying that never happens, but that is not the reason that it always happens at all. I've heard people in the Christians say, no, the reason, the reason you have this sickness or this sin is because you weren't thinking positive thoughts enough. Positive confession. You've heard that? Think positive. Think positive confession thoughts. Don't think negative. Don't come into me with negative thoughts and cause me to get sick. Don't come into the room and cause me to think negative things about my cold right now that turns into a sinus confection. Affection? Con- affection? Yeah. Sinus of infection. Infection. I knew they had action in there. I just wasn't sure what went before. But you get the idea. Don't talk negative. That's positive confession. That determines whether I'm healthy or unhealthy. I've heard believers talk like that. I've heard people say the devil did it. The devil does everything, don't you know? Everything bad in my life is because the devil did it. That's a common thinking that people have. He gets blamed for everything. He's not omnipresent, folks. He's not omniscient. Surely there are demons, but, and certainly I'm not saying that all sickness, sometimes it doesn't happen that way. I'm just saying, let's don't, let's don't get caught up in thinking that it's all because cause and effect, a specific sin, brings about a specific consequence. It's just not true. Jesus, in fact, is going to say that in his response to this. Jesus is going to say, In verse 3, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's what he's saying. It's connected to God. It's not connected to anything this man did or anything that his parents did. It's connected only to God, that God would... His glory would be displayed in this man. Now, in a specific sense, that's going to happen in this chapter. This man's blindness is going to put God on display in a huge way. But, folks, there are ways in which God's bringing sickness into our life and allowing sickness into our life does bring glory to him. Let me give you a few thoughts on that, just a few thoughts on that. Let me first take you to just these thoughts in the book of Job, in the book of Job. Eliphaz, you may recall, one of Job's friends who sits down with Job after he's lost everything and he's got boils all over his body and he's sitting there. Eliphaz comes up to him and says, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, implication, you're not innocent. You wouldn't have this happening if you were innocent. You see that that kind of thinking the disciples have? Same thing here way back in the book of Job. Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. You are getting, you are reaping what you have sown, in other words. That was the common thinking of the day, that your life is a mess and it's obviously because uh, that you are not living right. But I think that there's some reasons why that thinking is wrong and Jesus thinking is correct, and of course it's correct because Jesus said it, but the point is, Jesus says that it is to put God on display, and here are some ways that God is put on display when you and I go through sickness as Christians. One, he is put on display, he is glorified when I joyfully endure it. When I joyfully endure it, endure it, that I am trusting him in the midst of it, that I am believing in him even in the midst of it, that I embrace the lessons that he wants me to learn during those times, lessons of weakness, lessons of humility, lessons of having to allow other people to take care of me. I learn things, God teaches me things, 
he, he's, he, his glory is put on display. And his glory is put on display in those times that a flawless health would not show. If I'm just doing great and I'm always healthy, I won't, those things would not be on display. Humility and weakness and dependency and prayer and those kinds of things. Power is perfected in weakness. And there are times when you feel so sick or so down that you are totally dependent on God and you are in need of his grace and strength and mercy. And it's, uh, I want to get well. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get well. Of course we want to get well. But we just understand getting well is not the only thing that's good. Good is also when I'm going through it that I'm bringing glory to him in a joyful and faith-filled response to what he's doing. Character is produced by trials. We know that. Secondly, he is glorified when we get well. When I recover, he is glorified. Whether it was a miracle or medicine, he is glorified. (laughs) Either way. Thirdly, when necessary, it does bring about repentance. Maybe it's the consequences of some action I have done, something specific I have done, like I told you in, John, in James chapter 5. There's a sin I need to confess. God is glorified by that repentance. Fourthly, he's, he's, he's glorified if I end put on display when I don't recover, when I don't recover. I just get sick and sick and sick. I never get well. Joni Erickson Tata was told by somebody one time, a very well-meaning person, they came up to her and said, she's in a wheelchair from a diving accident. For those of you who don't know, I'm talking about Joni Erickson Tata, been used by God in mighty ways. Somebody said, I pray that you will be able to get out of your wheelchair and get healed. And she says, please do not pray that. Please do not pray that. You know why I don't want you to pray that? Because God uses me in this wheelchair in ways he would not use me if I was out of it. You follow me? He uses me. People listen to me. Other paralyzed people listen to me when I share the gospel with them because they they understand that I know what this is like. So don't pray for me for healing. I appreciate the consideration of that. I appreciate your intention in that, but I am given a unique opportunity. I'm not saying she said this at the beginning of her trial, but as time has gone on, that is what she has come to. Sickness also is a gateway to heaven. You understand that. It's your stretcher to take you to heaven in some cases. The believer cannot lose on this. It's sad to lose someone. It's sad when someone dies. We must show compassion. We must cry and grieve and all of those things, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We do have hope because it's a graduation into glory. It's taking us into victory. Death has been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. Romans 14.8, for if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. Do you follow that? Living or dying for the believer is so different than dying for the world. This is the only thing the world has is this life right now and it better last and it better keep going and the party better not stop or they have no hope beyond this life. You and I do not do that. We do not live for this life. We live for the life to come in the presence of Christ one day. Free from sin, free from sickness. I love Revelation 21. No more sickness, no more death, no more crying. That's our hope. And finally, let me just say this as well in light of the disciples' question that God is the one that is in charge of all calamities. Do you understand that? God is in control of every calamity, every tragic accident, every car accident, every economic recession. God is the one that's in control of everything. This is the sovereignty of God. He rules. Listen to this verse. This is Isaiah 45. You can write it down, turn later. Or 
Isaiah 45, verse 6 and 7, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. This is God speaking. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light, creating darkness, get this, causing well-being and creating calamity. God, God takes ownership of that. I am the Lord who does all these things. I am in charge of calamities. I am in charge of blessings. I am in charge of peace and well-being. I am in charge. I have authority over all those things. That's what he's saying in Isaiah chapter 45. Do you know that in the book of Job, in the book of Job, everybody goes to the book of Job for suffering, but do you know that every personality in that book puts the blame on God for what has happened? To Job. Everybody in that book recognizes that God is the one that brought that calamity into Job's life. Losing his children, losing his income, losing his flocks, putting boils on his body. Satan even says, You got a hedge, move that hedge and, and give me permission. Job even said, Should I expect just good things from God and not bad? Job's wife said, curse God. He did this to you. Curse God and die. And then his friends, Job, God did this to you because you messed up somehow. So there's a recognition of God's sovereign control in all of these things. All of these things. Exodus 4, 10 through 11, Moses said to the Lord, this is Moses. Moses says, I can't speak very good. I can't talk very good. Why do you want me to be the one to go to Pharaoh? Here's what God says to, in Exodus 4, 10. Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to me. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Exodus 4.10 through 11. God takes great, God takes authority over birth defects. God takes, we live in a fallen world, but God's in control. We live in a world that has been, we see the effects of sin all around us, but God is in control. Amos 3.6, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has the Lord not done it? Lamentations 3.37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is not from the mouth of the Most High both good and ill? This is a hard subject, but we live in a fallen world. The most don't want to think of God like this. But he is sovereign and he takes authority over these things. And he is the one that has promised us that one day there will be no more sickness, no more tears, and no more death. And we look forward to that time. So Jesus says it wasn't the mother, it wasn't the father. In fact, you know something? Ezekiel 18.20 says, you will never be responsible for your parents' sins. You know that? I've always told my kids, you can never blame me. God will not, that will not hold up in heaven. You, you, you are responsible for your own sins. And to think your parents did something or somebody else did something, no, it's God's sovereignty that God might be glorified. That's what Jesus says. Are you still in John 9? That's where we are. John chapter 9, this blind man sitting on the side of the road. Jesus says in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. The man's blind, uh, excuse me. Daylight is here. It's daylight is here. You know why it's here? Because I am here. There's coming a moment when I will not be here. But while I am here, we must do the works of God. That's what that verse is saying. There's been a lot of, it's obscure in some ways. I think when you boil it down, what he is saying, now is the time to be doing the works of God. In fact, I'm going to be going to the cross in six, six months. I'm not going to be doing this miraculous ministry much longer. 
I think that's the idea of these verses. Some have said that means judgment is coming, all those kinds of things. I don't think that's where this is going. But while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. That's what he says in verse 5. The sun will go down when I'm gone, but while I'm here, I am the light of the world. That's what I believe he's saying in these two verses. Somewhat obscure, there are other translations that you might find more helpful, but that's, or interpretations you might find more helpful, but I think that's the idea. Verse six, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made, get this, made clay of spittle and applied the clay to the blind man's eyes. We see this in Matthew 9, Matthew 8, where he touches eyes, where he puts uh, spit, spits into someone's eyes. I don't know why he does it this way. I'm not sure why he does it this way. Some people have gone back to the apostolic fathers, and their interpretation of the reason he did this is because it was a creative act. And I kind of like this. It's a creative act from the dust of the ground. This man was born blind. Jesus is creating new eyes for this man. I think that's a good, I think that's a valid interpretation of this. The the early church fathers, that was their interpretation of it. It's a creative act. Therefore, he goes to the earth of the ground and takes mud and puts it in this man's eyes. This man didn't have an ocular system. He didn't, he didn't have the system that controls the eyes. And this man, is create, God is creating all of that. And it's, besides, it's not the spit and it's not the mud. It's the power of Christ that heals the man. Verse 7, he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated as scent. We've been to the pool of Siloam before. That's where the paralytic was healed, by the way. The rushing waters. Get in those rushing waters while they're rushing and you can get healed. Remember that scene in John 5. We're talking about the same pool. It's translated, it means scent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Oh, really, John, is that all you can say? He came back seeing. Think about that, folks. This guy's never seen before. I'm not sure how old he was. His parents are going to say later he's of age. That could be 13 up. You understand that? I think he's probably older than 13. But the point is, The point is, he goes and does what Jesus said. Jesus did not say to him, go there, wash this off, and you'll see. He might have been hoping that's what he meant. But the point is, he came back seeing. It's incredible to think about. Never seen the temple before. Never seen the people that he's he's encountered before. Never seen the sunlight. He came back seeing. Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? That's what he did. He sat and begged. That's how he made his living. His neighbors are amazed. And this verse on down to for the next 24 verses, you're going to have a debate between what his neighbors are saying and then what the Pharisees are saying. Verse 9, others were saying, this is he. Others were saying, no but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm he. I'm the one. That's me. Verse 10, they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? He answered, the man who is called Jesus. There he goes. I don't know what he looks like. I've heard you all talking about him. I've heard people talking about him, but that man called Jesus, made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. I went away and washed and received sight. Verse 12, they said to him, where is he? I don't know. I don't know what he looks like. I don't even know where to look. I've never seen him. Verse 13, they brought it. Okay, so the friends say, okay. Get the religious leaders in the, into the argument here. Get the religious leaders into the situation here. They brought, the Pharisees, they brought to the Pharisees this man who was formerly blind. And this just leads to more debate. Okay, verse 14. There you see it. Now it was a Sabbath day. There you go. Jesus, why do you do things on the Sabbath? You just know what it's going to create. Controversy. But I believe that was all his intention, always to intentionally do things on the Sabbath to show them that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that their traditions of the Sabbath had made the Sabbath a day of misery rather than a day of joy and worship. 
He attacked their Sabbath ritual over and over again. That was the main thing that took him to the cross was he violated the Sabbath, therefore he was a sinner, and he makes himself out to be God. He can't be from God if he's violating our Sabbath and all of our 600 and something rules that go along with the Sabbath. So that's an explosive statement there in verse 14. But he is demonstrating to them that he will heal whenever there's a need, and it doesn't matter what day of the week it is. Verse 15, the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. So the Pharisees asked this guy, how did you receive your sight? He says to them, he applied clay to my eyes, I wash and I see. They're very interested. There had been many more miracles performed besides this miracle. They have been very interested in Jesus. They are starting to feel their power and influence uh, eroding. So they're very concerned about what has happened here. Verse 16, therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Forget that he healed a blind man's eyes. The important thing to us is that he made mud pies. That's what matters on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine? Forget the fact that a man who's been blind since birth can see. Others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And so he had division even among the Pharisees. Verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? We're asking the blind man now, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. He must be from God to open my eyes. He must be from God. The woman at the well, I perceive you are a prophet. The Samaritan woman back in John 4, same thing. I perceive he's a prophet. He he must be a prophet. He must be from God. See, this was all theoretical to these men who are asking the questions. They have not been blind since birth. This man, it's real. Something happened that only God can do. This man must be from God. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. Need verification? Call the parents. This must be a con man. Let's get his parents here. Maybe, maybe this is a scam. Maybe he's been able to see his whole life. Verse 19, they questioned the parents. Is this your son who you say was born blind? And then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind and that now he sees. We do not know who opened his eyes. We do not know. You can ask him, though. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Your mom and dad are the two witnesses that verify that he was born blind. It's undeniable that a miracle has happened to him. They say that. But they say he is of age. They defer to their son Let him speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the religious leaders, the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. To be de-synagogued. They'd already passed this around. You are going to be kicked out of the synagogue if you say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. If you start talking like that, you're de-synagogued. This is serious for a Jew. It meant you were losing your nationality. It meant that you were losing your job. Forget begging for anything outside the city gates. You had no source of income whatsoever. This meant you could not have access to the synagogue or to the temple to have your sins forgiven. This meant you lost all fellowship within the community of Jews. You lost your social life. You lost everything. It's like losing your job and losing, losing your religion and losing your nationality all in one shot. We're talking something very serious here. You can see why the parents backed off because this is what the religious leaders have started to say about Jesus. Very controversial. I told you when we came to this section of John, it's getting more intense as we move to the cross. 
We're six months away. They want to kill him. They've already tried once, and it's, not, it's failed. The stoning, they tried to stone him in chapter 8, you recall, because he claimed to be eternal before Abraham, I am. Verse 23, for this reason his parents said, he is of age, ask him. That's the reason his parents did that. They didn't want to be desynagogued. Verse 24, so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. We know that this man who healed you is a sinner. Give glory to God, meaning come clean. Come clean. Achan was told this in in the book of Exodus to give glory to God. Come clean on what has happened here. Stop lying and tell the truth. Stop the charade. And keep in mind, they're speaking and there are many people gathered around listening to this debate. Verse 25, he then answered whether, now get this, this man is starting to get bold. He's called Jesus, Jesus. He's called Jesus a prophet. Verse 25, he then answered and said, if he, Jesus, is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, and now I see. I can't argue with that. That's amazing grace, right? Lying from amazing grace. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Here we go again. How is it done? I told you already, verse 27, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciple, do you? Wow. Whoa. How many times do I have to go through this listening to these questions and you're debating and he says you're not listening? Are you deaf? I mean, I've, I've said this. And so he just goes into sarcasm. Do you want to become his disciple? They didn't like, like hearing that. Verse 28, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Whoa. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but it's for this man we do not know where he is from. Jesus, it was said back in earlier in the book of John that Moses testified of Christ. Moses pointed people to Christ. We saw it in this morning in Sunday school. Doug showed us in Deuteronomy 18, the prophet that was to come. Moses pointed to Christ. Moses was not to insulate them from Christ. It was to point them to Christ. The end of the book of Luke, in fact, you may recall later, we looked at this a few years ago, but at the end of the book of Luke, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus and he was showing them everything in the Old Testament that Moses said about the Christ. This man is just a vagrant prophet. He breaks the Sabbath. He's not greater than Moses. Verse 30, the man answered and said to them, this is the blind man, the ex-blind man answers and says to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from and yet he opened my eyes. You are the religious leaders and you do not know who did this. Verse 31, we know that God does not hear sinners. If anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. This is the, ma- the man speaking, okay? Same man speaking. He's saying this. He turns the theological tables here. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Yet this man, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See how bold he's gotten? I'm just telling you, that's why I say to you, it just seems something is going on here by the time we get to verses 34 and following when he worships Christ. If God doesn't listen to sinners, then how did this man heal me? Because you're saying he can't be from God because he broke the Sabbath. Verse 34, they answered him, You were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. And so they put him out. See, it happened. He got put out of the synagogue. That's a terrible thing to have have happened. But they felt upstaged by him, so they excommunicate him. They reject him. 
Some of you understand this. Some of you understand that because of your faith in Christ, you have been ostracized by your family. You get a taste of what we're talking about here. For some of you, Christmas holidays, Thanksgiving holidays, sitting around that table, being the only Christian in the room is not a pleasant experience for you. You feel ostracized because of your faith in Christ. Some of you have come out of traditional religions. This is traditional religion. Come out of traditional religions and you profess Christ. You've experienced God's God's work of grace in your life and you stand for Christ and you're ostracized. Some of you understand a little bit of what they were talking about here. There's a cost in following Jesus. You must love him more than your family. You're to love your family, but you're to love Jesus more than your family, mother and father and sister and brother. Three minutes, I've got time. If, if this chapter ended here, it'd be very sad. I can't have you go home sad. <laughs> this is a divine work, and it's also and that he was healed of a physical blindness. But now we see the divine work, and it begins in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him. Now, Jesus has not been around. All of a sudden, Jesus comes back in, finds this formerly blind man, and says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a, that's from, that is from Daniel 7. That is, that is a messianic title of the Messiah. For for Christ, Son of Man. I saw one as the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, we're told in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man, that is a title of Christ and his his role as the, the Messiah. See, opening his eyes physically, that was the first part. That was intervention in a physical sense. Now we begin to see intervention in a spiritual sense. Eyes opened. Eyes opened. The grace of of physical healing was not the only grace that Jesus wanted to give this man this day. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, he answered, Who is he, Lord? That should be, Who is he, Sir? You don't have to necessarily say he's speaking in terms of, uh, of calling him God at that point. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He doesn't know Jesus. It's clear that he did not know Jesus is the Messiah. He knew he was a healer. He knew he was a prophet. We saw that earlier. But maybe this is Son of Man. Maybe this is God's anointed, the Messiah. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I am willing. Please point me to him. Jesus said in verse 37, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he prostrated himself. He worshiped him. He realized that this isn't just a man named Jesus, and this is not just a prophet. This is, this is God alone. You know why I say that? Because Jews did not worship anyone but God alone. It says he worshiped him. You don't worship anyone but God. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who, okay, get this. This is a little interesting here and we'll close with this. And Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Interesting. Against the backdrop of this physical healing, Jesus gives a little mini sermon on spiritual blindness. He says this, I came for those who cannot see, those who acknowledge their blindness The ones who admit they have a need. Those are the people I came for. The people who need a physician. Those are the people I came for. The others who have no need. The others who say, I see, I'm fine. I not come for them. I not come for them. The ones who say, we don't need help. We don't need a physician. It's the blind who come to sight. (laughs) It's, It's... the blind who come to sight in a spiritual sense are the ones who admit, I cannot see, Lord, help me see. I cannot see. Those of the Pharisees were standing by, they heard Jesus say that. Are we blind? Are you talking about us? 
They pop back into the scene. Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin or no guilt. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Do you see that? You say we're okay. We're okay. Everything's fine with us. The problem is with you. Therefore, Jesus says, your guilt remains. You stay in your blindness. It's those who recognize, open my eyes, God, I cannot see. Man, that should be your prayer. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Christ, that should be your prayer. God, open my deaf ears so I can hear what this pastor is talking about this morning. God, open my blind eyes so I can see what's being said in this room this morning. Don't let me die in my sins. Jesus says, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. If these words are just going over your head and they're boring and they're insignificant, you might want to ask yourself, what am I missing here? What am I not seeing? What am I not hearing? God, open my deaf ears that I might hear. God, open my blind eyes that I might see. Revelation 3.17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you don't recognize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You don't understand your condition. Apart from Christ doing that work in you, you do not understand your condition. You must see yourself as spiritually helpless. You must see yourself as a blind beggar. You must see yourself as dead in your trespasses and sins and headed for an eternal hell unless you repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why John Newton said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now and found, was blind, but now I see. God, I praise you for this morning. I praise you for this story in the Bible, this true story that we could read this morning and be encouraged by, that we could look at these words that are on the pages of Scripture and know, God, that Jesus is God. Jesus came into this world to open blind eyes physically and spiritual blind eyes as well. We thank you for that. We thank you for the privilege, God, of being in this room together to to study this together. I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know Christ, that you would open their eyes and open their hearts to the truth of your word. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.